Well, we turn a very significant corner in our study of the book of Genesis today as we look now at the patriarchs. Last week there was a bit of a transition from the tail end of the beginnings account to the patriarchs as we looked at the very brief genealogy and then got into what is now before us today in a study of the patriarchs. So we've, we've transitioned from the beginnings of the earth, of mankind, of sin and rebellion, of a promise of a worldwide catastrophic judgment of new beginnings in a new world. And sadly, as we looked at what this first civilization did in this new world, it had set its mind on a certain course communicated to us through Babel. And so God again acted in a profound way by scattering a singular people group into the 70 nations that are represented in the table of nations at chapter 10. So the people of Babel were committed to making a great city founded on idolatry and rebellion against God, of building a tower that would reach up into the heavens so that they would be able to commune with the little g-gods. And they wanted to make a name for themselves as opposed to glorifying the name of the one true God. So this drama played out at Babel, set the course for mankind on earth and exposed the pattern for virtually every civilization that has ever existed. Think about that. Virtually every civilization that has existed exists with the same mentality that we saw at Babel. We want to build a great city, we want to commune with the gods, and we want to make a name for ourselves. And so in the midst of this vast and terrible darkness that we see at the conclusion of Genesis 11, the promise of God in Genesis 3 of a seed that will come from the woman who will crush the head of the serpent, that promise is still true, but it is incomplete. It is with the patriarchs that we see this past promise materialize through the establishment of a unique people of God, and it begins with the call of the father of this and many other nations, the call of Abram. So in our outline, we're looking at the descendants of Terah, the key characters that are introduced to us there. It is Abram and Lot. It is the nephew of Haran who died. It is uh, Abram's nephew, Sarai, Abram's wife. We know that she is barren. We also learn something about this move that took place from Ur of the Chaldeans, where they settled and stopped in Haran. There's This move is a bit of a mystery. There's no indication that Abram's father, Terah, had any knowledge of or interest in the one true God. We're told in chapter 11 that Terah took his family from Ur of the Chaldeans and moved them. They arrived in Haran, which is about halfway to Canaan, and then they stayed there. So this is the map that we looked at last time. And this is where Ur of the Chaldeans are, and this is the route that they took. And you can see they paused up here in Haran. And then after... After Terah died, Abram completed the journey and began to go down towards Canaan. That is what we're going to look at. We won't see all of that today. But this is kind of where we left off. So it appears that Abram's call, based on Scripture, came to him while in Ur, and that he probably convinced his father to move the family. And Terah was only willing to go as far as Haran, which was also a religious center for the worship of the moon god, 
manna. Now, a lot of this is speculation. We are told of the detail. But the Bible affirms that God called Abram out of Ur, and it appears that Abram stayed in Haran until his father died, and then completed the journey to Canaan. So we've looked at this as a bit of an introduction. We're going to see the beginning parts of this explanation here. I very ambitiously wanted to go through verse 9 today, but I very quickly discovered that wasn't possible, so we're going to stop at verse 3. So there's a part of this that we have been introduced to. Some of this we'll see today, and then the completion of this call we're going to see next time. So we're going to read together Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, as we look at the call that comes to Abram. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country, and from your relatives, and from your father's house, to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So as we continue developing our outline, we come to number three here, and that is the call. We see the key players, we see the move, there's this unexplained pause in Haran, and now we get more detail about the call that comes to comes to to Abram. So as we've seen in several places within our study of Genesis, Moses is not concerned with a strict chronology. He isn't trying to tell you in sequential fashion all the events that took place. So there's some things that are out of place as we would think about them or perhaps even understand them, and they're out of place for a reason. And so what we see here is another example of this. It is very likely that the call recorded here actually preceded the move that was explained to us in the tail end of chapter 11. For reasons not provided in Scripture, Terah and the rest of his family moved from their home up north as we saw on the map and they settled in Haran and it appears that this was as far as Terah was willing to go. Now, as we think about this, there's a lot that we can't explain. There's a lot that we cannot know, but we don't need to get bogged down in those details. So as we look at the call here, one commentator says this, the divine call of Abram is central to the patriarchal narratives because it includes three components that explain the thematic development of the remainder of the book of Genesis and the entirety of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. What we're going to see in the call here is central not only to the remainder of our study in Genesis, it is central to all of the Pentateuch, and really I think you could argue it's central to all of Israel's history, even in the modern day. These three vital components are land, nation, and blessing. All of Israel's existence has been about the land that God promised to them. It was about the establishment of a nation ordained by God to be His people. And it was this blessing through whom all of the earth would be blessed, originating in error by the graciousness and the goodness of God. So these three components here, land, nation, and blessing, are central to the call of Abram, to all that we're going to study in Genesis, and to the Pentateuch, and by extension, all of the Old Testament. All of Israel's history is embedded in this call of Abram, and the promises that God makes to him in this call. So let's look at this call. Letter A, there's a call to leave. 
The very first part of chapter, of, excuse me, verse 1, 1a. Now the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house. Pretty straightforward, right? All we know about Abram's past is in the brief genealogy that preceded this call and what can be known very generically about the ancient city of Ur. Moses completely omits, overshadows, ignores the first 75 years of Abram's life. It is all of a sudden, here's this man, and God has now issued a call to this man, and we know nothing about him other than the line of ancestry that he comes from. So I believe this call to to Abram here is very different from the unique call that was given to Noah. Noah was a righteous man. He was blameless in the sight of God. He was one of only two people, the Bible says, walked with God. And so God chose Noah to build the ark because he was this incredibly righteous man. I don't believe this was true of Abram at the time of his call. Abram was a pagan and a family and a country of pagans. And God, for reasons not explained to us, called Abram to leave. We aren't giving, given any details about this call. We don't know when it occurred, how it occurred, what Abram was doing, where he was going, nothing. We don't know anything. So the question is, was he worshiping Nana, the moon god, on the top level of the ziggurat when Yahweh suddenly and unmistakably appeared to him? And he said, wow. You are Nana. You're something different. We don't know if that's what happened. Was there a gradual revelation of the identity of Yahweh that enabled Abram to finally understand who the one true God really is? We don't have any of this information. We just don't know. But I believe that God simply called Abram out of this life of paganism. This call was not based on who Abram was, but on who God wanted him to be. Noah was a righteous man, blameless, who walked with God, and out of a culture of rebellion and idolatry, God pointed to the only one who walked with him. Very, very different. Abram is called out of this culture of paganism because God simply chose him to be the father of this unique people of God who would later be called Israel. So there is this call here to leave, and this kind of gives you the idea of what's going to come next, but following God always means leaving something. Following God always means leaving something. For us today, to follow God means that we immediately leave a life of sinful, selfish Pleasure. We would call that repenting. Turning away from our sin. Turning away from ourself. Turning to Christ and to submitting to Him as our Savior and as our Lord. We follow and we leave. They are part and parcel. They cannot be separated. For some, the call to leave or to follow may include something vocational like a job. It might involve something relational, like getting away from people who are bad influences or those that would interfere with our ability to follow with God. Sometimes the call may mean leaving where we are geographically and going somewhere else, like a missionary to another country or to a ministry in an area where we don't live. To follow God 
always means to leave something. Abram's call was on a whole other level. In many ways, it encompassed all of these things and so much more. The call to leave is expressed to Abram in ascending order of difficulty. Leave your country or leave your land. That's pretty tough, right? Uh, do you want me to leave? You want me to leave the United States? Well, that seems like a pretty big move. I don't know why I would want to do anything like that. That sounds like that's going to be really, really hard. Well, on top of that, I want you to leave your people. I want you to leave all of your relatives. Uh, really. Leave the states. Leave everybody I've ever known. And go someplace else. Yeah, that's exactly what God is asking Abram to do. Leave your father's house. Leave your nuclear family. So not only is he going to leave his land, he's going to leave all of his countrymen, and he's going to leave the entirety of his nuclear family. So you're asking me to leave my family, my father, his guidance, his protection, his provision, his influence over my life. Is this what you're really asking me to do? Yes, that's what I'm asking you to do. I'm asking you to leave it all and follow me. The leaving that God is asking of Abram in your country your countrymen, and your relatives, this would eventually constitute the most significant kinship units that people would know and value. Tribe, clan, and family. That's the way ancient world understood who we belong to. We belong to a tribe. It's a, a tribe is a group of people in a, in a continuous place, geography. There is this clan, the the greater group of people that I'm affiliated with. Think like, we're all Pennsylvanians, right? And then we're talking about leaving family. All those that are related to me by blood and by law. Leaving it all. God simply calls Abram to leave everything and everyone behind. Let her be in her outline. Not only is there this call to leave, but the implication is to follow me. 1B, the last part of verse 1, to the land which I will show you. Now this has a, a dual role here. So Abram left everything behind without knowing where he was going or when he would get there. Now, this is what most would consider a blind leap of faith. You've heard that term, right? A blind leap of faith. I want you to leave everything and everyone, and I will eventually tell you to stop when you get to the place I want you to go. Now, just think, what would you do if your child or your sibling or a close friend came to you and says, Hey, God has called me to leave the United States I'm not taking anybody with me. I don't know where I'm going, but I know I'm going to know when I get there. What would you say? He said, are you nuts? Why would you think that God would call you to do such a thing? We, we couldn't understand that. This is a call that is beyond all calls. What God is calling Abram to do, this pagan of paganism, is just immense. And there's no background given to us as to how or why Abram should even understand, embrace, or follow through with this call to leave and to follow him. The faith that pagan Abram possessed 
and a God that he likely just came to know is far beyond anything we could even begin to understand. And as we know, Abram obeyed completely. We aren't told of any questions or refusals or bargains that Abram might have thrown into the conversation. Remember Moses when he was called Yabed God and Yabed God and what about God? Remember Jonah? Jonah said, nope, I'm going that way. Then we don't know anything about what Abram's response might have been. All we know is that he obeyed. By the way, this call to leave it all, this call to follow God, is actually the call of the gospel. It's the first call of the gospel before there was this thing that we would call and understand as the gospel. Jesus would say in Matthew chapter 10, He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it. And he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. You don't read anything like that in the book of Genesis. You don't really read anything like that in the Old Testament. But this is exactly what God is calling Abram to do. Forsake it all and follow me. It is the first, the first instance, instance of the call of the gospel. So when we come to Christ, we aren't told what our future will be like. We aren't told where we're going to go or what we're going to do. It's like a blank contract. God says, follow me and I'm going to fill in all the details later. And we say, okay, God, I trust you. And then as God begins to fill the details, we say, wait a minute, wait a minute, that's not what I bargained for. We are promised a life of comfort and ease. We are promised a life that is smooth and conflict-free. What we are told is that He will be with us every step of the way. We are told that He will be leading us towards our ultimate good. And we're told that in spite of our external circumstances, He will provide peace and joy that is beyond our understanding. The reality is, is that as Abram closely followed God, abided in Him, remained in Him, He never wavered. When Jesus was preparing His disciples for His death, His burial, His resurrection, and then His eventual ascension out of their lives physically, He said this, If you keep My commandments, you will abide in My love, just as I have kept My Father's commandments and abide in His love. Highlight this, These things I have spoken to you so that My joy may be in you, and that your joy may be made full. Now, Jesus wasn't walking around dragging His feet, kicking up a cloud of dust, saying, I can't believe this is what I'm here doing. I can't believe I've got to do this. I can't believe these people i got to deal with. Do you believe Jesus was filled with joy? Do you believe that Jesus' joy is greater than the joy that you and I experience? How can we know that joy? He tells us. Abide in Him. Connected to the vine just as He was to the Father. So the call to Abram was very much like the call of the Gospel. It is called a faith to leave the things of this world and to follow God alone. Abram has this call to leave and to follow. Number four in our outline, we're going to look at the promises. Now i got to tell you, this could be a lot longer than it is, and it's longer than I would prefer, but I don't want to come back and revisit this in its entirety. So this call to follow, to leave is 
followed by these incredible promises that God makes to Abram. So while I'm sure these were very intriguing at the time Abram heard them, these promises most certainly did not erase the need for Abram to exercise faith and following God and trusting that God would actually do these things. So what is implied in the leaving to go where God would lead Abram is the promise of land. The first key component to the existence of the nation of Israel, it is land, land, nation, and blessing. And so to go to the land that I am going to show you is the promise of land for the eventual nation that Abram would actually become the father of. He wasn't just to go someplace that God wanted him to go. He was to go to the place that God was giving to his descendants which is affirmed for us in what we're going to look at next week in verse 7. The Lord appeared to Abram and said to your descendants, I will give this land. So when Abram arrived in Canaan, God spoke again and said, Stop, this is it. This land is going to belong to your descendants. This is now your home. Now you can pause right there and you can inject... 2,500 years of human history and the conflict that exists in the Middle East. It's all about land. It's all about where the Israelites said, God gave me this. And all these other groups are saying, "Uh uh-uh, we got it first. We were here, not you. And so this whole conflict is over land. Key component to the patriarchal narrative to all of Genesis and to all of the Pentateuch. Without a land to call their own, people are just nomads doomed to live a life as foreigners in someone else's land, always guests, never a citizen. Abram is called to go to the land of promise, or the promised land, that which is given to Abram and his descendants by God. So land will become the dominant theme throughout Genesis and the Pentateuch. The battle for land still challenges Israel Today, Now we can backtrack to October when the Palestinians began to lob bombs into Gaza. What was that all about? This is our land and you're here and we don't want you here anymore. So we're going to bomb you and kill you and get you out. That's what it's all about. So we'll talk more about the land next time. So as we continue in the promises that are here, let her be the promise of a nation. Beginning part of verse 2. And I will make you a great nation. Abram will become the father of Israel. Now this is an incredible promise. Not only because Abram is going to be the father of a nation, but Abram is 75 years old, and he's married to a woman who cannot have children. Yeah, it's like, wait a minute, God, what did you say? I'm going to be the father of a great nation? How's that going to happen? I'm an old man and my wife can't have kids. Well, Abram is aware of this. <laughs> he knows Sarai cannot have any children. And so this promise of being a father of a great nation had to have been incredibly startling as Abram heard God speak these words. And it should remind us that what is impossible with man is very possible with God. We look at these things and we say, that can't happen. There's no way. And God says, way. I mean, we just forget that, don't we? God is capable of doing far more than we we can ever expect. And here, 75-year-old Abram is hearing this promise about becoming the father of a nation when he doesn't even have a kid yet. 
The challenge of seeing this promise fulfilled is a prelude to the miracle that God will perform and it speaks of how the sovereign plan of God cannot be stopped. Now this wasn't a promise that God made that was dependent upon the actions of Abram. Well, if you go see the right doctor, if you really eat healthy and exercise more and and do this and don't do that, then you might have a kid. That wasn't it at all. You will be the father of a great nation. It's my plan and it cannot be stopped. It's the sovereign plan of God. Man cannot stop God's plan. So just as God in His sovereignty called Abram as a pagan of pagans to be the father of Israel, He will sovereignly provide the ability to fulfill this promise in Abram's life. Abram is the first patriarch followed by his offspring, Isaac and Jacob. You've heard this referred to many, many times. The patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? Well, it proves that God fulfilled the promise. It confirmed the worthiness of Abram's faith in this God of the impossible. So Abram would never see the formation of the nation that God promised. Did you realize that? Abram never saw the nation of Israel. But he lived his life with the certainty of it being fulfilled. After he arrives on the scene, after he sets up shop, if you will, and he's there for a short while, we'll we'll explore this more in Genesis 15, God speaks to Abraham, Abram again, and says, he, he, God, took him, Abram, outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars, if you are able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. Then he believed in the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. Seventy-five-year-old Abram with a barren wife looked at the stars of the sky. God said, that's going to be the number of your descendants. And Abram said, okay. If you say so, I believe it. Can we recognize how incredible that kind of faith is? When we struggle with being certain that God is there, that God is working for our good, that no matter how crazy it seems and it feels, God is in control. I mean, there's such a disconnect in the faith that we have and what we understand as a finished revelation culminating in the in the sacrifice of the Messiah for our salvation, and here is pagan Abram believing that God is going to make his descendants as numerous as the stars of the sky when he doesn't even have a wife who can have a kid. There's a disconnect in our faith. So here's 75-year-old Moses gazing at the stars in the sky going, wow, that's going to be my... Ancestral tree. It's amazing. God, you're good. He didn't say, well, God, how are you going to do that? Can you fill this out for me? And you... He didn't ask for any of that kind of stuff. He just believed, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Abram never saw the fulfillment of that promise. Moses is the one who inherit the fulfillment of this promised nation when he led an enslaved people out of Egypt across the Red Sea 
where they camped out and God appeared to Moses and said, These are my people. Then the nation of Israel was established. Abram didn't see it. Isaac didn't see it. Jacob didn't see it. But they all lived in the confident assurance that God was going to bring this about. Lastly, what we're going to look at here, letter C, is the blessing. You've got land, you've got nation, and you've got blessing. So there's always a blessing that comes from following God. Let me say that again. There is always a blessing that comes from following God. It might be a provision for something. It might be a protection from something. But God always, always blesses when we follow Him. So first there is here, letter I, the personal blessing that is going to come to Abram. To be. God says, and I will bless you and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. So the promise of God's blessing here must have been somewhat overwhelming in all that Abram is experiencing and hearing as he begins to think about what it is that God is actually telling him. He would not only become the father of a great nation, but he himself would be blessed. His name will be great, And He Himself will be a blessing. So at this point in the Revelation in the Old Testament, in Genesis, to be blessed primarily means one of two things. It either means progeny, a lot of offspring, or it means material wealth. And most believe that the latter is what is implied here, that this is God's promise to richly bless Abram in his material, in his material goods. Not only in the progeny, but also in the material goods. For whatever Abram would sacrifice and leave behind, God would replace with great abundance. Just think about Job, right? All that Abram would sacrifice and leave behind, God would replace with great abundance. But he's also going to make Abram's name great. Now, this ought to remind us of what transpired at Babel. What were the people of Babel bent on doing? We want to make a name for ourselves, right? They wanted to be celebrated. They wanted to be known. They wanted fame. They wanted notoriety. They wanted to be the who's who. But this is not Abram's desire. This is not Abram's bartering with God. This is simply God saying... I am going to make your name great. Abram didn't seek it. Abram didn't ask for it. Possible Abram didn't even want it. But God said, this is going to be the result of your faith in me. You're going to be the father of a great nation. I am going to bless you. And I am going to make your name great. Abram would have tremendous influence for generations... And in the day of Jesus, Abram or Abraham was still revered as the prime example of what walking with God looked like. So in chapter 17, when God changes Abram's name, he says this, No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make nations of you and kings will come from come forth from you. 
Not only the father of Israel, do you see what God promises here, but you will be the father of a multitude of nations. Kings will come forth from you. So in every respect, this is what made Abram's name great. The work of God through faith and obedience. Not a coincidence. Not just a a perfect storm, if you will. Abram's name was great as the result of faith and obedience. Now, there are people who mistakenly, within Christian ministry, there are people who want their name to be great because they want to be on every TV channel and, and they want everybody's money and they want all the accolades and all that kind of stuff. This is not what we're talking about here. We're talking about having a spiritual legacy that far outlives your natural life. That is what it means to have a name made great by God. You know, there are probably going to be people who know the name of Billy Graham for generations. Well, here within the nation of Israel, most especially, the name of Abram was great. It was exceedingly great. So we see the personal blessing. Secondly, letter double I, is the global blessing. Verse 3, And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So there's far more here than just the law of retribution, where there's going to be curse for curse and blessing for blessing. Those who bless Abram will be blessed, but what you see here is the one who curses you literally disdains you, I will curse. So they don't even have to do something bad to Abram to be cursed. They just need to hold Abram in a low regard. They just need to ridicule the name of Abram. They just need to, to, to relegate him into a nothing. There's that idea of disdaining, cursing, thinking poorly about that appears to elicit God's action towards those who have thought poorly of this great man, Abram. So there will be a heightened disproportionate punishment for merely disdaining Abram, not doing something negative towards him. So examples of this, Melchizedek and Abimelech were blessed because they came and they honored Abram. Hagar, the maidservant of Sarai, who would eventually give birth to Ishmael, she was cut off from Abram's line just simply because she despised Sarah, who later had her name changed. So there's a significant retribution that comes to those who disdain the name of Abram, the spiritual ancestry of Israel. And it means this. God is at work in these anti-Israel, anti-Christian nations in ways that we may not actually see at work today. For example, the USSR was hostile to Christianity. It doesn't exist anymore in that same fashion as it did. I think about China, who's doing all it can do as a national government to stamp out Christianity, and I just sit back and know that sovereign God is in control and nothing escapes His gaze, and He's going to deal with China in a way that's suitable in His plan. God is at work against those who have great disdain for the spiritual ancestry of Abram. 
We read something about this in the New Testament. Today, those who align themselves against the church are not going to fare well. This is based upon a warning that we see here. And Paul carries forward that same warning in the book of Galatians 3.29. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. You don't have to be Jewish to be a descendant of Abraham. All you need to be is a spiritual ancestor of Abraham because you believe in the one who came through the line of Abraham, Jesus the Lord. And what it says here is that if you belong to Christ, then you are covered under the promises that was made to Abram all the way back in Genesis chapter 12. The promise that all the families of the earth will be blessed is found to be true through Jesus Christ, a literal descendant of Abram, and the fulfillment of the promise of the seed of the woman that would crush the head of the serpent. And this is what Paul also brings forth to us in the New Testament in Galatians chapter 3 saying this, The Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying all the nations will be blessed in you. So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. The gospel of Jesus Christ first issued as a faith engagement to Abraham all the way back in Genesis chapter 12. This is what Paul is telling us through the inspiration of the Spirit, the same Spirit that inspired Moses to write the history that we're reading and studying, the same Spirit that spoke to the Apostle Paul to join the two together to show how the new completes the old, how the new fulfills the old, how Jesus is what binds the new and the old together. This is what the Spirit of God has done. So then we who are of faith, we who are believers, are included in the promises and the blessing of the patriarch Abram. Our salvation, secured through faith, is the same type as Abram's, even though he didn't see the fulfillment of the nation, even though he didn't see the fulfillment of the multitudes of nations, even though he didn't see the kings that would come forth, and even though he didn't see the pinnacle of it all in the coming of the Messiah, he still believed. And since we are spiritual ancestors of Abram, our faith secures our participation in the blessing of Abram as expressed here in Genesis chapter 3, excuse me, Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. Now, I hope you don't go, I'm glad that's over. I hope you go, wow. What a God. What a God. When I, when I read these things, when I study these things, and when I just thank God for the scholarship that makes these connections, my confidence in the completed revelation of God's Word just grows and grows and grows. God is sovereign. He called each of us out of that sovereignty. And He simply asks us to leave and to follow. And in doing so, 
we will be partakers in the blessing issued to Abram.